This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Checking In Season 2. I'm your new host, Zara Barnes, Self Magazine's Interim Editor-in-Chief. Every week, people reach out to us with questions and concerns about health and wellness. And I connect with experts and people who have been there before. The goal is to find some answers to these questions so that anyone who's going through something similar feels a little bit better. So I'm coming to you now from my little DIY closet recording studio, and I'm so excited for you to hear what we have lined up for you this season. First up, of course, we are going to talk about the coronavirus. Now that we have multiple vaccine options, it gives me a little hope that we might finally be turning a corner on this thing, at least in the U.S. Globally, unfortunately, it's a different story. But as more and more people become eligible for vaccination, I've been noticing something on my social media feeds and in conversation with friends and family. Confusion, anxiety, and concern. And honestly, a lot of it reminds me of the collective feelings we were having around this time last year. So for this episode, we're doing something different. Instead of just one question, we have a bunch. Whenever I think about the vaccination, it's just been really full of anxiety instead of relief, which is what I hoped it would be about. Like, I'm hearing a lot of stuff about it affecting certain people in certain ways, and I just don't want to just take it, and then something happens when I could have avoided it. So my concern was, is this vaccine good for me to take because I have other health conditions? So what I'm wondering is, how do I cope with this anxiety that's building up around the vaccine side effects? After the second vaccine, I had no reaction. Is that a bad thing? Does it mean that my immune system isn't ramping up to fight the potential virus? I suffer from emetophobia, which is the fear of throwing up. Two of my best friends received their full vaccinations of the COVID-19 vaccine, and both of them have thrown up in the 24 hours following, which has led to a lot of anxiety for me, thinking about when it'll be my turn to get the vaccine. Listening to those questions, I can just feel the secondhand anxiety. I edit a lot of coronavirus coverage thanks to my job, so I am constantly plugged in and reading the news. But I, of course, still don't always know the answers, especially when it comes to a topic like this. The guidance surrounding COVID-19 vaccines is constantly getting updated as researchers and experts gain more data. If you have a single takeaway from this episode, I want it to be that these vaccines are an incredible feat of medicine. They're wonderfully effective at preventing death, hospitalization, and even symptomatic COVID infections. 
Emerging evidence even suggests they're really effective at preventing asymptomatic COVID infections as well, which is huge. Beyond that, though, I can't blame you for having questions. Thanks to years of medical research and an all-hands-on-deck approach, the rollout happened quickly. But it can be confusing to understand how it's also happening safely and what you can expect when getting the vaccine yourself. All of this naturally gives people pause. For this episode, we're going to walk through the basics. Hopefully, you'll feel a little more informed, because understanding how something works can really put your mind at ease. But it can also help prepare you with the knowledge you'll need to go through the process of getting the vaccine yourself if you haven't already. So first, I'll be talking to epidemiologist and self-contributor Dr. Tara Smith to get deeper into all the things we know about the vaccines. Then, in the second half of the episode, I'll talk to someone who's both covered the vaccine rollout as a journalist and gotten it herself, Sarah Jacoby, SELF's associate news director. I had these conversations in mid-March as vaccine eligibility really started expanding. And based on what I've learned, it seems like it's only up from here. Okay, Dr. Smith, I am so excited to chat with you because I don't think I've ever told you this, but your email that you sent me over a year ago asking if I wanted you to write about the coronavirus that was circulating That was my first tip that it was going to be big. That's when I realized, okay, this is something I actually need to pay attention to. So you have played a role (laughs) in many ways in my in my pandemic journey. And I'm just wondering to get us started how you're doing at this point in our pandemic experience. Yeah, um, I'm exhausted. Like everyone else, I'm, you know, I've been experiencing pandemic fatigue for months. To say Um, that Dr. Smith has been busy this past year is an understatement. She's a professor of epidemiology at Kent State University in the College of Public Health, and her research focuses on zoonotic infections, meaning ones that spread between animals and people. She's also a science communicator who aims to help the general public understand how to best keep ourselves safe from disease. I usually just say I, I look at disease transmission, you know, how how disease spreads through populations. For me, hearing from epidemiologists like Dr. Smith during the pandemic has been vital. They've helped me feel so much more informed, which, yes, sometimes made me more stressed, I will admit, but other times it made me feel hopeful, especially when the vaccine news started rolling in and the news was good. The science shows that these vaccines are incredibly effective at preventing symptomatic infections, hospitalization, and death from COVID-19. When it comes to preventing those symptomatic infections specifically, the efficacy for Pfizer and Moderna, the first two vaccines authorized for emergency use in the U.S., is around 95%. Yeah, it was so amazing when, you know, I saw some of the data from uh, the Pfizer and Moderna trials. And that's like our best vaccines out there. That's, you know, more akin to measles. Now here it's, you know, we're not even at 18 months and we have over 100 million doses given out there. So it really has exceeded um, w- my most optimistic thoughts about a year ago as, as far as where the vaccines would be at this point. 
since the World Health Organization declared this a pandemic in March 2020, the fact that we already are getting vaccines into millions of arms is something worth celebrating, but is also something that scares some people and they're worried about the vaccine development process cutting safety corners in some way. So I would love to hear your response to those types of concerns. Yeah, I mean, this really has shown what we can do with a vaccine if we have political will and basically unlimited funding, because those were the two things that really allowed this to go so quickly. They went through all the same types of clinical trials that any other vaccine or drug would go through. They went through three phases of trials, looking initially at small numbers of individuals, just looking at safety, and then moving to very large numbers, you know, tens of thousands of individuals to determine that vaccine efficacy. And so the reason that these were able to be done so quickly was because, I mean, unfortunately, we had of course, a lot of viral infections out there. And so that makes it easier to look at how well the vaccine works just because the levels of infection are so high in the population. To be totally clear, no one thing is going to contain the coronavirus pandemic. But the vaccines are a really important tool that we have at our disposal. So let's get a little deeper into how the vaccines work. In general, vaccines are kind of like a personal trainer for your body's cells. They teach your cells what a pathogen, in this case a virus, looks like and what it acts like. And they teach your cells how to fight back against that pathogen. That way your immune system is ready if and when it comes into contact with the virus naturally. For COVID-19, researchers and pharma companies have developed a variety of vaccines. The first two to become available in the U.S. were the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and then Moderna, named for the companies that developed them. These are what we call mRNA, or messenger ribonucleic acid vaccines. For a little callback to high school bio, RNA exists in all of your living cells, and messenger RNA is aptly named since it holds instructions from your DNA to teach cells how to do things like make proteins. Here's Dr. Smith breaking down how this technology works when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines in particular. So those are basically naked mRNA encased within a fat layer, so a lipid outer shell. And that lipid shell really was what allowed them to come to fruition because mRNA itself is really unstable. Like you look at it funny and it degrades. So basically they see that as instructions to make a protein. And the protein that is encoded by that mRNA is the virus's spike protein. So that's what the virus uses to bind to our host cells. And it's also the key antigen. So it's what our immune system recognizes and responds to. So when the cells get those instructions to make the spike protein, the next step is that the immune system sees you know, that, that this is something new and something that they should respond to. More recently, the FDA authorized the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for emergency use in the U.S. as well. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a DNA vaccine. But what you really need to know is that it provides protection in a similar way to the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. I also asked Dr. Smith about this completely false but very persistent rumor that mRNA from the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines somehow sticks around in our systems and changes our DNA in a permanent way. As Dr. Smith explained, that is absolutely not the case. 
so all of this work is done in the cell cytoplasm. So in kind of the, just the watery um, part of the cell, what people are concerned about would be things that go on in the nucleus. So where all the, the cells instructions are, the mRNA doesn't get reverse transcribed into DNA and get into the nucleus. That just doesn't happen. Like I said, the mRNA is really unstable. So it's kind of like in the spy movies where, you know, they have a, a message that self-destructs after you read it. That's basically what mRNA does. It tells the cells what to do, but then it's so fragile that it basically just destroys itself after a, a very small amount of time being in the cell. And this is true for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as well. Knowing how the vaccines work has also helped me better understand side effects, and that is a huge concern so many of our listeners had. I want to go back to my little training analogy for a second here. You probably remember a time when you tried a new workout, and then the next day you were sore in ways you didn't realize a human body could be sore. That is totally normal. It's what happens when your body is building up this new strength. So it makes sense that when your immune system is training and learning how to fight the coronavirus, you're probably going to feel some side effects after getting the shot. But in the vast majority of cases, these side effects are nothing to be concerned about. Most of the side effects are really just your immune system responding. So the side effects that we have, fever, soreness at the injection site, are really just your immune system, you know, cranking out cytokines and, and things like that, that help your immune system respond and, you know, block these viruses in the future. These vaccines kind of mimic a natural infection. So those reactions are completely normal. It's it's a normal response from your immune system showing that it's really responsive to the vaccine and is doing everything that it's supposed to be doing. Probably more than half of the population gets some combination of chills, fever, sore arm, sometimes headaches, sometimes nausea from the vaccines. So it's very common to have those. Usually they last for, you know, anywhere from a few hours to perhaps a few days. And again, that second vaccine dose for, you know, the Pfizer and, and Moderna vaccines really seems to also kind of kick it in a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, we got a really interesting listener question that someone was wondering, what does it mean if they don't experience any side effects? Is that something they should be worried about? Yeah, and I've seen that a lot on my Facebook pages too. Like, you know, they, they got the second one. They were totally expecting to be knocked out for a day or two and they felt fine. So is this still working? You know, if you're lucky enough to, to not experience those side effects, that doesn't mean you're not protected. It means you probably are, but maybe your immune system is just, to, you know, a little more gentle in responding. So either way, whether you experience no side effects or you're feeling a little bit achy and under the weather for a day or two, it means that your body is priming itself to fight something that could be dangerous to your health in the future, COVID-19. With that said, there are some very rare side effects that could be concerning. In particular, if you have allergies to any components of the vaccines or if you've had a severe allergic reaction to vaccines in the past. In extremely rare cases, people in this situation have experienced anaphylaxis, which is a severe allergic reaction that can involve serious trouble breathing after receiving their COVID-19 vaccine. But I want to emphasize how rare this is. A recent study in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that out of every million mRNA COVID-19 vaccine doses given, 
Anaphylaxis only occurs in 2.5 to 11.1 cases. So anyone who has allergies should be getting screened for when, when you get your COVID vaccine, they'll ask you about that. And then for most people, you have to stick around about 15 minutes after the vaccine just to see if there's any you know, reactions. But if you have a history of severe allergies, they're going to ask you to stick around for 30 minutes because most of those reactions have happened within that time. It's important to remember, though, that vaccine administrators are prepared for any potential severe side effects. And that brings us to the process of actually getting the vaccine. Eligibility has opened up across the U.S., but it's been a complicated process. Each state has its own systems, and some groups might be eligible in one, but not another. So I'd really like to emphasize that if you're having trouble with these logistics, it is not your fault. The rollout has been particularly subpar when it comes to equitable distribution and access for communities of color. At the time of this recording, the CDC only has race and ethnicity data for about half of people who have received at least one COVID-19 vaccine dose. But within that, about two-thirds of the recipients were white. Only 9% were Hispanic, 8% were Black, 5% were Asian, 1% were Native American or Alaskan Native, and 1% were Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander people. Obviously, stratifying people along racial lines in this kind of data can be complicated, but this still paints a clear picture of vaccination disparity. You may have seen that there is a lot of talk about vaccine hesitancy in communities of color and how it might affect these numbers. And yes, of course, past and present racism and medicine play a role in this broader conversation. But the data increasingly show that Actually, plenty of people of color want the vaccine, but don't have access. In fact, in a March 2021 survey from NPR, PBS NewsHour, and the Marist poll, 73% of Black people had gotten or planned to get a coronavirus vaccine, compared to 70% of white people. Barriers to equity and vaccine rollout are multifaceted. It's not like there's just one. We need more culturally competent outreach and awareness campaigns as a start. But even once someone has decided to get a COVID-19 vaccine, just getting an appointment is much more possible with things like internet access and lots of time on your hands. And in some communities, a lack of pharmacies can make it even harder to access COVID-19 vaccines. So, you know, I, I think as we move forward and again, as as vaccine becomes more available, you know, even things like in some neighborhoods going door to door or taking it via things like meals on wheels or working with public transportation to get people to, you know, to come in for shots. Since you are so deep in this world, do you have any tips for people who are really confused about getting the vaccine, how they navigate that system? Any insight to share with that? It's so hard, again, to have anything universal because every state is doing it differently. So I would just try to start probably with, you know, either if you have a primary care physician, maybe start with them or work with your local, maybe county public health department. They can often tell you kind of how things are going and what the you know best places are to register, who has the most vaccine available, things like that. And if you still have questions, we actually have an article on self.com all about how to get your COVID-19 vaccine. We'll link to that in the show notes. 
So because we're apparently not allowed to have anything that is just purely good right now, there are some coronavirus variants of concern. What that means is basically that the virus that causes COVID-19, which scientists call SARS-CoV-2, has about 30,000 letters in its genome, which is all of its genetic information. Viruses naturally replicate, and sometimes some of those letters might change by mistake. Any change is a variant. The thing is that some changes are actually good. They can cause mutations that, for instance, render the virus inactive. But in other cases, these changes could make the variants more dangerous, like by spreading more easily. So far from what we've seen, the vaccines that are out there are still pretty good against the variants of concern that have been identified so far. So basically what we're trying to do is really eliminate hosts for the virus so that they can't continue to evolve further. So again, I'm just going to reemphasize, we really need to keep using all of the tools at our disposal, even though we now have this really powerful one available to us in the form of vaccines. And really excitingly, just a few hours after our conversation, Dr. Smith had an appointment to get her first dose of the vaccine. We actually were able to get into a mass vaccination clinic at my university for this afternoon. So um, so as of about you know five o'clock today, hopefully I will be vaccinated. Oh my gosh, congrats. How exciting. <laughs> yes, I'm very excited. I feel like each person I hear of who is getting the vaccine or has gotten vaccinated is just an additional little glimmer of hope. Yes, yes. So, you know, I've had lots of joy on my Facebook feed in the last couple months, much better than this time last year. We will be right back after a quick break. So when we hung up with Dr. Smith, she was on the cusp of getting her vaccine. And it got me thinking about what a wild experience it must be to get a coronavirus vaccine while also having followed the development process so closely which, in turn, made me think of Sarah Jacoby. Sarah is Self's associate news director. She's gotten both doses of her coronavirus vaccine, and she's been covering the pandemic for us from her studio apartment in New York City, which, by the way, is why you may hear some street noise. Sarah has really been focusing on science, data, and expert insight amidst the chaotic news cycle of this pandemic. And she noticed that her own feelings about the pandemic started to change when the vaccine news began rolling in with these headlines touting that, actually, the vaccines were proving to be really effective. Honestly, it took a really long time for me to be able to feel hopeful and optimistic. I think partly as a journalist, you're trained to be skeptical, especially of anything that sounds miraculous and new. And I think we also saw some kind of irresponsible reporting. You know, we are also taught to not report about press releases about data, to wait for FDA approval. I think um, because of the the real trauma of living through a pandemic and, you know, not having people in government who were taking care of us in the way that we needed to be taken care of, and also the journalistic instinct of just like, this seems too good to be true right now. And I think it's been really helpful to portray these these vaccines in an accurate, appropriately skeptical way. But also, you can celebrate that this is a victory. That's, that is okay. That is an okay. <laughs> you know, it's okay to feel optimistic at a certain point. So 
How do you, in your reporting and your writing, couch and explain potential drawbacks like side effects without being fear-mongery or without contributing to misinformation? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it's really important for people to have an accurate, realistic understanding of what they might be in for. It's important to remember to not just weigh the potential risks and benefits of the vaccine, but to weigh those against the very well-known by now risks of getting COVID, you know, can be a life-threatening disease. Even if you don't die, you can be left with very long-term health issues that can really dramatically affect your life, even as a young, generally healthy person. So I think just putting all of that into perspective is really the best thing we can do and hope people are you know, able to, I guess, sort through that on their own and with the help of a doctor, if necessary, to figure out what makes sense for them in their, like, individual situation. I think this is also something that makes all of this so confusing. We've had to make a lot of big decisions for ourselves during this pandemic thanks to what I'm going to call a gap in leadership. But those decisions often affect the people around us, too. So we need to talk about herd immunity. Herd immunity happens when enough people in the population are immune to a particular pathogen, so it's no longer able to spread within the community. This immunity can come about through previous infection or vaccination. The tricky thing is that in order for COVID-19 vaccination to potentially bring about herd immunity, the vaccines definitely need to prevent transmission of the virus, not just symptomatic infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. Luckily, the emerging evidence suggests that COVID-19 vaccines do make it much harder to get infected with the virus, even asymptomatically. With that said, scientists still don't know exactly what percentage of the population needs to be vaccinated for COVID-19 herd immunity. So it's a bit of a moving target right now. But the goal is the same. Get as many people vaccinated as possible. And after reporting on the vaccine for months... Sarah became eligible to get one herself at the end of February. You know, I didn't really know what to expect when I got there, but immediately I felt like, oh, people have got this under control. Someone is doing something. Somebody has a plan, finally. And, uh, you know, it was a real relief, but it also put in perspective just how difficult the past year has been, especially as somebody who covers this frequently and gets to see every, you know, the play by play of all of the failures and, you know, just uh, every difficult moment. After dealing with all of the emotional baggage of living through a pandemic, Sarah was finally feeling some relief. But like a lot of us, she still had underlying anxiety about the vaccination experience. I, I have a lot of allergies, including allergies to medications. So anytime I take a new medication or I get a vaccine, I get super anxious and my mind goes to the worst case scenario. It just goes wild. And for me, when I got my vaccine, it was in like a like a big mass vaccination clinic type scenario. So the idea of having something go wrong in front of other people added a lot more anxiety to me as well. So I, I, my advice to anybody who gets anxious around vaccines for whatever reason is to let the people there know because they're there to take care of you. They're there to make this as easy a process as possible. And that's exactly what Sarah did at her own vaccine appointment. 
When it was her turn and she told the National Guard member who was administering her shot about her anxiety, she got a pleasant surprise. Kind of to just to distract me, they asked me like where I was from and I'm from Arizona. And turns out all these National Guard people in Brooklyn had just flown in from Arizona. <laughs> so like, you know, I had a little emotional moment like, oh, my God, my my home state came all the way out here to take care of me. It just it just felt really nice. And so so after I got the the shot, they you know, they very kindly let me wait in that specific chair for like a minute or two until like I was feeling okay enough to stand up. Normally they would have me kind of like walk to the front of the room to get the next open seat. But because I had this this conversation with them, they were like, you can just sit right out there in front of us and we'll keep an eye on you. And I sat out there for my 15 minutes and the woman who had given me the vaccine came and checked on me and talked me through it. And, you know, she said that she kind of gets that way too. And it was just a really, really nice, nice moment. And then I, I got to leave and bring my card with me, walked home on a nice, like, sunny day in Brooklyn and, uh, you know, <laughs> had myself a little cry because I just, like, it was just such a relief, such a, a huge moment that we've been waiting for for so long. And, like, the, the home state component really added to it, I'll say. <laughs> When we talked, Sarah had gotten both of her vaccine doses. And by the time this episode airs, she'll be past that two-week waiting period and will be officially fully vaccinated. So, of course, I had to know, how was that going to change her life? It wasn't until I got my first shot and then I got the, the confirmation email for my second shot that it really felt real. Even just the mental exercise of thinking like, these are the things I'm going to do once I'm fully vaccinated. And to be clear, it's not an exciting list. I'm going to get a haircut. I'm going to go to the dentist. Like, you know, I'm not going to go wild. But just that mindset of like, I have a little bit more freedom here is honestly kind of empowering. I didn't realize how limited my thinking had become because it had been just routine because that's the way it had to be to get through this past year. In terms of like actual behavior, I am still planning to be as careful as I can. Definitely still gonna be wearing my masks. You know, I've been talking with my uh, my partner and I, we're actually both like huge fans of masks at this point. I think neither of us is gonna get on a plane again without a mask. We, uh, we just feel great about masks at this point. I feel like we're kind of defrosting a little bit where we're thawing out. But we're doing it really gradually and really carefully is, is the way I'm thinking about it. Have you seen a lot of confusion circulating about what people can and can't do after they're fully vaccinated? Yeah, I think one of the biggest points of confusion is what fully vaccinated even means. A lot of people think that once you get your second shot, you are good to go. But it's actually, you know, you need to wait two weeks after your final shot, whether that's the second shot of the Moderna or the Pfizer or your one shot of the Johnson & Johnson. I guess I just don't want people to throw caution completely to the wind because we know that even with these really effective vaccines, it's going to be a gradual process to really completely or as best we can contain the pandemic. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. I somehow learned even more than I learned from your reporting. So that was great. I hope that was helpful to our listeners who sent us questions, and really anyone who's confused or anxious about the vaccine. 
If you still have specific concerns and you have a trusted physician, be sure to ask them for advice. And actually, after talking with Sarah and Dr. Smith, I'm so grateful to say that I lucked out and got my first dose of the vaccine too. When I was standing in line, I got really emotional thinking about how many people worked so hard for me and millions of other people to be able to get these vaccines. So thank you to every single person who has played a role in this incredible achievement, and thanks so much for checking in. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate and leave a review. Also, be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app. It helps new listeners find us. You can find more information and references from this episode in our show notes. Follow Self on Instagram at Self Magazine and follow me at Zara Barnes. Checking In is produced by Wonder Media Network. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Lead producer is Lindsay Crowdwell. And production assistant is Alessandra Tejeda. On the Self team, our director of programming and development is Sarah Yalowitz. Our digital director is Amy Isinger, and our researcher is Madeline Shire. From the Condé Nast entertainment side, the head of production is Carrie Clayton, executive producer is Stacia Jones, and senior producer is Elon Schoonmaker. The theme music is by Biscuit and Butter, courtesy of Blaze LLC. Thanks for listening and see you next week.